Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. GabRadioNetwork.com You've heard AM, you've heard FM. Now, tune in to DM Radio, the world's longest-running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. Folks, welcome back. Welcome back once again to the longest running show in the world about data. It's time for DM Radio. Yes, indeed, your host here, Eric Cavanaugh. And folks, this is another in our series, The Strategic CDO. So I'm so excited today to have an expert chief data officer on the call today. Actually, he's the managing director of the chief data office over at TIAA. We've got Oleg Aspis online today for a really cool conversation about what those folks are doing with data, and it is really, really impressive, I have to say. We have a live studio audience here as well today through Zoom, so feel free to send your questions through the chat window. But just very quickly, let's bring in Oleg Aspis of TIAA. Welcome to the show. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you're doing with the world of data, Oleg. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So um, I'm a 25-year uh, veteran of the diversified services industry. Uh, I've spent the entirety of my career in uh, large corporations like Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, and now TIA, um, helping them um, optimize of how they use data um, and uh, how they're able to satisfy the needs of their clients through a variety of solutions that are driven by a variety of data decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis. Um, and obviously, recently, with the evolution of cloud, as well as uh, the constant growth of data assets, right? We have a lot more decision points that we need to take into account in order to find the right solution for a variety of our institutional as well as individual clients. Yeah, the cloud really has changed the game. And there's this topic of alternative data that you and I discussed a couple of weeks ago, and I was very impressed by what you're doing there. And just for the benefit of our audience out there, alternative data really refers to third-party data, any number of data sets that you can rent or or buy, even outright, and use to better understand prospects, customers, market dynamics, whatever the case may be. Tell us a bit about what you're doing with alternative data and how you're using it, I believe, with these life event models. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, for, going back a little bit to the history, alternative data originally started purely in institutional investment space, right, as another lens to identify um, and look at investments that a company makes beyond traditional SEC statements, a variety of tax reporting and other scenarios. It has really, like you said, expanded to encompass a much wider area of third-party information. Um, so no matter how much information current corporations capture under 
B2B or B2C clients, regardless of the channel or other components, a lot of times it doesn't give them the same quality detail from which they can act and plan accordingly, especially in the financial services industry, um, in order to help their clients with the long-term you know, needs or other scenarios. So like many other companies across the industry, we leverage um, significant amount of information from 6,000 plus providers that are out there now globally. Now, we're not clients of all of those providers, but in terms of how big the market is um, for various aspects of alternative data with a lot of those providers um, concentrating on very specific uh, you know, data sets that are associated with certain lenses. There are some that handle you know, household views. There are some that handle specific B2B companies in the healthcare space or aerospace. So it depends who your clients are you, or what segments you might want to enter. Um, you might be using a variety of providers that are to obtain what you need. Obviously, there's a whole slew of them that are concentrating on global entities, right? Basically, corporation, all of their um, companies that are part of those global conglomerates and the financial details behind that, as well as, you know, the product, the sales statistics and everything else. Um, but there's also tons of information that has come um, out um, that's available for acquisition through a variety of channels, starting with credit agencies and others about individuals, right? So activities like marriage, um, somebody is, goes out and um, gets a Trulia account, right? It automatically gets queued at a certain third-party provider that will let you know that, hey, that person is looking to buy a property, so there's a good chance they're going to need a mortgage. So as a result of that, here's an opportunity, right? And that person happens to be already a prospect in your database or existing customers of yours, which then gives you hopefully higher odds to be able to offer them that solution as a result of that. So there's a lot of day-to-day -day activities that we don't really pay attention to that we function on, whether it's through social media or through other activities around our household that at the end are um, utilizing third-party data to then help drive triggers to um, many corporations that either have a relationship or want to build a relationship with us as a result. Of so um, recently I was looking at a list of um, insurance settlements, right? There's another list that um, a particular provider is selling uh, around lawsuit settlements, right? And publishes basically how much a different household won as part of a particular lawsuit. So wealth advisors are acquiring that data to then basically say, hey, come, we'll help you manage the assets that you just obtained, right? Um, as one of the trigger points. And, and a lot of this data is technically public, right? But majority of the companies out there don't necessarily have the time to scavenge it themselves. So they rely on third-party providers to help you aggregate and bring it to your enterprise uh, with different price points, right? In terms of getting the ROI for the investment that you're making based on your ability to actually secure that, um, that, that business afterwards. Yeah, that's that's really amazing, and it's very savvy of uh, of you folks to be able to access some of this stuff. Because you're right, a lot of it is public data, but the question really becomes one of performance and being able to access the data, reconcile the data, put it in the context of your prospects and of your customers, and then take some action. So you're talking about data pipelines basically being connected to these third party sources and triggers, as you suggest, according to certain models that come into play. So. From your perspective, what you're doing is assessing what data you have available to you, figuring out where it's relevant to certain products and services that TIAA offers, and then again, getting those pipelines in place, and then being able to understand when some significant event occurs. And I have to think that, again, because it's public data, your prospects and your customers in particular have to be pretty impressed uh, that you're paying attention to them and to their lives, right? 
Yeah. And, and, you know, that's going to bring up a separate point that we'll cover in a few minutes regarding privacy. Um, but, but, but in terms of the pipelines are super critical and the latency in those pipelines are critical. Uh, because like in the example that I used a little bit earlier regarding you opening up an account with one of the online realtor sites, right? Um, if we find out about that 60 days, 90 days, 180 days after that event occurred, most likely by that time you might have found the property. Right. You went on the web and searched for, you know, what's the best mortgage rate or the real estate agent gave you, you know, particular mortgage brokers with who you dealt with and acquired a mortgage. Right. So that opportunity is, is kind of not going to provide you a lot of value at the end. Um, so being able to exploit those things in a timely fashion is critical. Like and another great opportunity that I'll give you is majority of your listeners probably have a LinkedIn account. Right. And um you know, when they change their job, what, what, one of the things that you do is oh, wow. you go update your LinkedIn profile, right? Yeah. So as you update your LinkedIn profile um, and you're not moving to a new job, you probably or potentially had a 401k in your previous company, right? Which a lot of obviously U.S.-based um, employees do. Um, and when you move to a new job, you have a, probably a new 401k offering. So through various studies, we were able to determine that if we were to use some of the data that's obtained through LinkedIn and those channels, and we go to you during your transitionary period, which is really wow. the first 14 days or 30 days associated with your new, you taking your new job before you fully settled in and you're so busy and you're flying around the country or whatever your responsibility is, we're able to convince you a lot more rapidly to take those old 401k assets and get them into an IRA, which will give you a much wider market investment opportunity as a result of that. Because what happens in a lot of cases, folks, as they switch from job to job, they let their 401k sit there in the old plans, right, with their old provider um, in a dormant form versus holistically planning for all of their, you know, lifetime income needs looking at all of those assets end to end. So these are some of the key things um, and use cases that a lot of financial services firms try to exploit in order to, you know, drive assets in the management, revenue, and obviously help the clients, right, with ultimate goals. Well, and that's, that's very interesting stuff, too, because I've often wondered about this in terms of identity resolution, and you referenced this at the top of the call, with respect to corporate entities, but also just individuals. And uh, we're all dealing with hackers, and we're dealing with identity theft and all these unpleasant experiences but I've been waiting for the day when companies would be leveraging data like from LinkedIn, for example, to know where you are and what you're doing. And obviously not everybody updates their LinkedIn profile when it would make sense to do so, but many, many people do. I actually just joked this morning on a different webinar that I'm surprised 50 million Americans haven't logged in to update their part-time job now, which is teacher's assistant for XYZ school wherever, since all these kids are working or, you know, working from home and, and taking school from home. But that's very interesting. And again, it, it, it gives you at TIAA a very rich picture of where people are. You're talking about planning for your, your lifetime financials. That's a very serious process. And to stay on top of that, what I find interesting here is you can step in at that critical point in time and offer some advice to folks, many of whom don't probably understand or appreciate the intricacies of these developments or of these contracts, right? So you're able to step in at the appointed time and offer some valuable advice when the, when the customer needs it, right? Yeah, with, with advice not only based on the three pieces of information that the customer might have provided you over the last five years, but a lot of other dynamics, right? Outside assets and, and other facts, the size of the household, location, right? Because in some cases, some of the recommendation might be 
to, you know, take some money out of your residential property, right, and put it more into an investment account, depending on the needs and the scenarios and the goals that you have. So having that well-rounded third-party view of your customer without always necessarily relying on them to give you 100% of the picture is critical to be able to tailor customized uh, advice. But one thing that you mentioned earlier regarding security, another piece of I may add, one of the challenges also that's coming as part of this equation is the global privacy laws, right? Many of you have heard of GDPR in Europe, obviously in the US, Nevada and California, with California being the one that's um, enforcing most uh, with CCPA, are also changing the dynamic in terms of what and how you will be able to use third-party information um, about you, right? So, so the shift in a lot of these states and also some federal entities, even though there's been no um, federal law that's passed yet, but you know, Vermont has taken some steps to push that is where you as the consumer actually own your data. And you should have the capability to direct where you want to allow your data to be used and not be used and have control of your data assets, right? Um, which is critical overall because in order to satisfy those privacy requirements, one of the key steps is also to validate that the user that's coming in to to enforce their privacy laws or they are who they are, for which a lot of companies are using third-party data to find out where you, you know, for your step-up of security questions, um, additional aspects about you. So as many of you have at times probably tried to open an account with, um, um, you know, um, one of the credit agencies or things like that, they ask you what car you drove in 1992. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what road or what, you know, who was your high school teacher for X and Y? Um, how do you find that out? Right. You never provided that detail, right, to the institution that's trying to deal with you in this relationship. Um, third party data and alternative data is the approach a lot of companies are taking, but privacy law is definitely going to have a pretty significant transformation in this place um, and how it's handled for, for different, you know, customers and prospects as we go forward. Yeah, that's going to be a whole issue around policy definition and execution, right? So you're going to have yeah. to have policies and some technology in place to be able to manage all that and especially to manage it at scale. I mean, that's always the big challenge for an organization like TAA is just the scale of the challenge that you face leveraging whatever technologies you've either built or purchased over over time. But I think you're right that this these privacy rules and regulations are going to impact us all and we'll have to kind of watch the course to see how they adjudicate these things but but nonetheless uh, it is an issue you know i'll throw out a quick side note here something the other day i saw on facebook it just came up on my uh, feed it said oh are you registered to vote in connecticut and i'm thinking connecticut i was born in connecticut i've never lived in connecticut (laughs) yet here's someone got access it must have been from there it must have been from a you know birth certificate uh, oriented data source. So that's another perfect example. And plenty of companies are canvassing these systems right now and trying to piece them together. And of course, at TIA, I think you guys have a bit of a head start, right? Yeah. And we're, we, to be honest with you, we took a different approach. Uh, a lot of companies um, and dealing with a lot of my peer group have taken a very compliance-oriented approach, right? I have to be compliant with this privacy law from this state in order to satisfy X and Y. We knew that it's going to grow and some of our institutional clients are going to have specific demands around what they want us to do with their participants, right? Um, so the approach that we took is make it an engineering problem, right? How do we dynamically orchestrate and build a platform to be able to manage the rules associated with the requests coming in into the pipeline, their authentication and validation of the party that's actually making the request, 
what are the rules that are associated with the requests that they're providing from a regulatory perspective? Because, for example, one of the key attributes of CCPA is ability or the right to be forgotten, right? Mm -hmm. So you have the right to delete your data. Well, if you have an active account, obviously you can't do that. But even if you have a dormant account and you closed, and it was a brokerage account as an example, and you closed it 36 months ago, the Security and Exchange Commission mandates that that data is stored on online form for seven years, right? So what, what rule wins? So by building really a platform and managing everything through a, um, a markup managed uh, um, rules engine, Right. This way it can be configured by our oversight partners versus IT resources having to go in and custom orchestrate all these rules gives us the flexibility and ability to be able to adapt to whatever is thrown into the equation. Mm. Um, you know, at the same time, be able to handle the who wins permutation in a lot of these methods. That's a really, really good point. Conflicting rules and regulations. So what you're describing here is basically a layer of abstraction that you put in place for the management of rules. And it sits in between interfaces, applications and the data, right? And that allows you to be much more agile and flexible in, in managing when these conflicts occur, right? Yes. So once you get all of your aspects back from all your data discovered, right, in terms of where is that particular individual's data set exists across the enterprise, um, that's when the rules start to be applied in terms of what can you action and what you can't action before it goes to the fulfillment chain and channel and the tail end of the equation. Um, so all of this has to be a fluid uh, approach. Otherwise, the investment that the companies will have to make from manual resource activities and scalability is just not something that's feasible, right, for any large company. So for those companies that took it as a short-term compliance effort, hoping that the privacy rule evolution was going to slow down, most likely they're going to be making significant investment down the line, right, to optimize that further because it's just not a scalable avenue. And, and the quantity of requests that are coming, it's especially the big banks and brokerages, as I interact with my peers and they give me the numbers, is pretty pretty astonishing numbers, right? And wow. there's a lot of catalysts, right? Every time CCPA is mentioned on the six o'clock news, right? You know, you got a thousand requests within a couple hours, right? Um, for residents, right? Within that municipality or that town um, who are watching the news and now know that they can exercise certain activity. <laughs> wow. That's, that's crazy. It's really fun to have that visibility, though, to be able to sort of map that activity to what just happened in the news. And you're right. I think uh, I'm, I have to commend you for taking a very strategic view and program orientation to deal with these things, because, as you suggest, to be reactive is, is just going to be very painful. Well, folks, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. You're listening to the longest running show in the world on data. It's called DM Radio and the Strategic CDO. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio and the strategic CDO. Very excited to have Oleg Aspis. He heads up the uh, department of the CDO for TIAA. And Oleg, you kind of hinted at something uh, before the break there, which I wanted to dive into a bit more deeply, which is data strategy. And you kind of commented on how large organizations who viewed GDPR from a compliance 
first perspective or compliance only perspective are probably back on their heels a little bit. And uh, I think you very cleverly pointed out that uh, rules and regulations are going to change. We're going to get new states coming up with their own. We're going to get maybe the U.S. at some point, maybe. (laughs) It's hard to say what's going on in our country right now with respect to uh, Congress and the government. It's a bit unwieldy, I suppose. Uh, But the bottom line is you have to have a data strategy to win these days. And I think that if I'm hearing you correctly, at TIAA, you're taking a very strategic, proactive approach and and enabling your future actions with this sort of layer of abstraction. Can you kind of talk about your data strategy and and how you implement it? Yeah, so obviously data strategy is a critical anchor point for us in terms of what we're trying to accomplish, not only from um, the business outcomes, uh, but a lot of historical baggage, right, that every CDO tends to inherit with legacy assets, you know, uh, legacy infrastructure, um, and then other events and other um, adoption of technologies like, you know, cloud, SaaS, and other solutions that the industry evolves, as well as the volume of data. So what, what we did um, about three years ago is, uh, you know, a small group of us essentially got together as our new chief data officer joined the firm um, and put together a pretty comprehensive um, data strategy, not in terms of just a bunch of fancy marketing decks to show executives, but all data strategy items kind of cover the, the different dimensions of things that we need to do execution ones, right? What is our people strategy in terms of the people that deal with our data assets today? What do we need to do to help our business analysts on the business side? Do, do we need to staff up data engineering? Um, what are the aspects of things that we need to do to make our data science more of a reality, right? Um, As you encounter a lot of folks, a lot of companies, the key message that you get, everybody's a data scientist, right? Even though they're doing basic reporting. So if you notice is the quantity of actual data scientists and people that build models and do data science type of activities um, is a fairly small amount versus the people that are just generically crank out reports that the business needs, right, from a day-to-day perspective. So our strategy was anchored to what our customers need, right? And by those customers being our B2B customers, our B2C customers, um, our regulators, right? They oversee all of our day-to-day activities, being customers as well, as well as what our internal employees need, right? In order to do their job as they work through this data-intensive and data-rich world. And then from there, we baseline specific tools and technologies and techniques that we're going to take. Um, as well as filter out the specific investments that we were making, whether it's our data fabric, whether it's certain cloud solutions, whether it's refactoring certain data warehouses, right, for moving from, you know, certain on-premise assets to the cloud. Um, At the same time, having the right utility lens around it to make sure it's secure, it's efficient, right? Um, It has the right ROI model because of the big fallacy that's still going on with a lot of data assets is, well, if you shove it into the cloud, it's going to be cheaper, faster, and more effective. Not necessarily. It depends who's using it because your egress charges and everything else going back between your enterprise network and the cloud sometimes can cost you more than your internal uh, systems. So there's a balancing act. But um, our data strategy was very thought through. But like I said, the key for us was it had to be something that was applicable and usable um, and, and, and translated into actual implementation projects which enabled us to achieve certain outcomes versus the very common data strategy, right? Let's make a couple of pretty slides for executives, right? <laughs> and then figure out what we do underneath. So um, that was really our approach. Um, but like I said, very heavily engineering and action focused versus mm-hmm. theoretical. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff. And you talk about refactoring, right? So 
Kubernetes obviously is, is often called the operating system of the cloud. And what we're going to need, it seems to me, is this very robust hybrid architecture because cloud is here to stay. But I think on-prem is going to have a very, very, very long tail. I think uh, the rumors of the on-prem data center's demise have been exaggerated. But what do you think about that? And what do you think about the long-term role of on-prem versus the, all these different cloud options, which, as you suggest, are going to be changing and improving. And I have to think along different vectors, right? Azure is going to move in a certain direction. Google is getting very serious about their cloud offerings for enterprise, finally. And, of course, Amazon is still kicking kicking butt everywhere. What do you think about all that? Yes, yeah, so, so gr- 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 great question. Um, Unless you're a vertical company with one product line and have a small data center, there are some specific things that you can leverage one provider and, you know, pump your data over over time and stay there. The reality is you're going down the hybrid cloud approach, right? Most likely, you're not going to settle down with one cloud vendor. And I'm keeping the SaaS solutions a little bit out of the way um, because they, they add another layer of complexity to the equation, right? And they've been around for many years, like Salesforce and others. Um, but Companies are starting to build, especially the uh, diversified global companies, are starting to build more of a hybrid strategy where they're unifying a lot of their internal infrastructure assets, right, into limited grouping. So you might have your mainframe, and then you might have your private on-premise cloud that's built on, you know, uh, commodity hardware, right, that gives you ability to scale for the things that is not just not cost-effective to move to the cloud. And then, you know, a lot of companies, depending whether you're a .NET or a Java shop, tend to start leaning into certain directions, but at the same time using multiple providers. So I'll give you an example. A lot of companies that utilize the Microsoft stack, um, specifically around, um, you know, Office 65 and others tend to lean a little more Azure. If you're a traditionally Java shop, you know, a lot of them have leaned for a long time on AWS. Um, and then, you know, Google is definitely making a significant wave. I think that while Google has had the technology to make it happen, Google's ability to penetrate the Fortune 500 and large corporate market and sell to large corporations has, you know, hasn't matured until recently. So while they've had the technology assets, for the most part, they were the most appetizing cloud provider for Silicon Valley and, and, and you know, tech firms and, and real techies. Big companies tend to use more of the folks that they were used to, which in a lot of cases are those traditional salespeople that went from Oracles to Amazons or Microsofts of the world, right? Um, but, but hybrid cloud is where we think and where our strategy is taking us both from a partial SaaS as well as from, uh, you know, the full custom build perspective. Uh, but it's also very use case driven. Um, and the reason for that is you need to have the right incentive to move to the cloud, um, specifically around what use cases give you the most value, right? Things that need elasticity, things that need scalability, right? For me to go secure 40,000 CPU cores to run a complex model internally, means I have to buy a bunch of hardware, shove it in my data center, have it sit dormant most of the year, right? And when I need to run my models, that's when I apply. That's not a cost-effective approach that any CFO is going to approve, right? But ability to be able to move your assets to the cloud as far as your data sets into S3 buckets or other mechanisms, and then get that data loaded or stood up, in the case of Snowflake or others, it's a little bit of a more modern architecture, and run what you need and then get that output and use it in your operational process back inside is the real great value of the cloud. Now, there's a bunch of other use cases, but the mistakes a lot of companies make, they just pick up lift and shift internal infrastructure 
where they still have to go and manage patching, you know, and all the upgrades versus really taking uh, advantage of cloud native assets and pivoting and using the right cloud target stack um, mm-hmm. are some of the strategic things that tend to bring success to companies versus I'm just going to do data science outsourcing, right? Which only going to reduce your cost and give you optimization to a certain extent. Yeah, and that, that kind of brings up this whole data orchestration space. I kind of watched this happening. I've been in the business for about 20 years now, just talking to vendors and users, to consultants, analysts, et cetera, and just tracking what, what's happening out there. And to me, probably three years to four years ago now, the changes in how you move data were so significant that we've really entered a whole new world. And I, I refer to that as data orchestration. There are lots of different vendors out there doing some interesting things. But t- to me, it is a vastly different world now. And it seems to me that what you've done with this, this push towards cloud native and embracing hybrid cloud is you've really enabled yourselves to access the best of breed, whether it's data movement or data analysis or whatever, and you're not... I don't want to use the word locked in, but you're not um, you're not bound by some traditional constraints, right? You're able to fairly quickly ramp up some projects that maybe is being offered in the Azure cloud, for example. Whereas if you did not have, if you had not taken that approach, you'd be kind of behind the eight ball a bit. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the key is abstraction, right? To have that flexibility because that also gives you portability from one cloud provider to another so you're not locked in. Because a lot of companies take advantage of cloud and lock themselves into a technology stack with one provider, right? So every time you change something, you have to go change your code now to work on somebody else's stack, right? Unless you are smart enough to containerize it, right? And abstract it. The other piece is really what, what I would say is the fabric. I think fabric is critical. And what I mean is by data fabric is critical portion in order to be able to integrate all your data right, um, and orchestrate your data the right way, right? Um, traditionally, what have companies done? They've uh, used ETL, right? The data stage, right, um, the Informatica, and you move huge swaps of data more in a, you know, in a batch row form from one place to another. Uh, streaming and other real-time technology data as a service has become more available. You need to expose all of those interfaces um, to all of your application teams in order to take advantage of those, to be able to integrate and orchestrate the data into the different solutions or different business processes that happen to have solutions built out on different cloud providers, right? Um, so, so you can't look at it purely as, um, especially as you embrace cloud as a purely infrastructure or purely security or purely data. You need to make sure that all of the layers in that cake are orchestrated in the right way with the right patterns of movement because you can also create a free-for-all where if you open the cloud completely to all of your development community, everybody's going to build their solutions using their own way, their own standards and their own mechanisms, which interoperability then at the end becomes um, a challenge as well. So there's definitely a lot of planning, organization, a lot of best practices, um, as well as a lot of avoidance. And what I mean by avoidance is learning from other competitors as well as other peers in the industry on what not to do based on other successes and failures is one of the critical parts of the equation as far as I'm concerned. That's pretty funny. I have a good friend, uh, Mark Madsen. He was an analyst for years. Now he's uh, he's one of the chief guys over at Teradata. And he actually joked with me years ago, we wanted to do a series on failure and talking about failing because you hear all these success stories all the time, and that's great. But you made such an excellent point there. You can learn at least as much 
by the failures of others and try to learn the smart way, right? Or the easy way, learn from how other people have dropped the ball and avoid those failures. How, how do you do that when people don't really want to talk about their failures? Well, I think in a lot of cases, when folks buy a solution from a given provider, they tend to use a lot of third-party consultants as well, right? So what we tend to do is penetrate that third-party consultant world and have a conversation with them in terms of, hey, you were brought in on phase two of this and this initiative, right? <laughs> what did you learn from the previous mess that was left wow. or other dynamics? Um, and a lot of times they're fairly transparent in terms of what they discover, um, even though, um, to be honest with you, what what we see in the scenarios from the broader, you know, financial technology, financial services industry and others is um, repetition of the patterns and system implementations that you have done traditionally in your own data centers on legacy platforms is being repeated into the cloud, right? Because they always done it this way. And instead of getting outside help and, you know, retraining folks on how to take advantage of setting up the right guardrails and patterns, folks go and repeat what they've done internally. And it's just not a recipe for success because to be really cloud native, to take advantage of cloud assets uh, in a secure, efficient manner, you do have to alternate with your patterns. And the you know, technology industry has evolved, so you, you have to be somewhat open-minded. So we, we see a lot of failures in um, you know, very legacy. I've done it this way 20 years ago in a data warehouse. I'm going to build a data warehouse, warehouse using exactly the same construct in the cloud. And then it doesn't mean that it's not going to work, but are you getting the efficiency out of it, right? that you know that you should um if you were to build it more cloud native and optimized for the assets that you have underneath the infrastructure level yeah and you know what we should go into that a bit more deeply in the next segment coming up here in just a couple of minutes because to me really understanding cloud native is going to be a critical success factor going forward basically because the the relatively fluid situation seems to me to be crystallizing right now and to your point, you cannot just go into the cloud with your existing architecture and all the, the ways you built data warehouses in the past, in part because the, the, the players are changing. And I think we just saw just very quickly, less than a minute left, the whole Hadoop ecosystem brought a lot of good to the marketplace. But that uh, Snowflake IPO sure was a reminder that data warehousing is alive and well, right, Ole? Oh, Yes. Yeah, I was uh, I was pretty impressed by that. And again, I watched that whole thing very carefully. Tremendous gains had been made in the open source community. I think that was the big takeaway from what we saw in that whole Hadoop space because a whole bunch of different vendors came out. And I think that there was a bit too much reverse engineering required to leverage the full power of all that. If you kind of look at the the arc of innovation that we tracked over the, let's say, eight or 10 years or so that Hadoop rose and then sort of fell, or at least subsided in terms of attention, that was one of the, the key issues is that uh, there was a lot of work that had to be done to get all that stuff to work properly, to get to the, the sort of nut, if you will, which was analytics at scale. But now the cloud has done that for us. And of course, the, the cost of cloud storage dropping precipitously did not help. But folks, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to DM Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All 
All right, folks, back here on DM Radio, another episode of the Strategic CDO. We're talking to Oleg Aspis of TIAA, and those folks are doing some really, really cool stuff with data, including alternative data. And just before uh, we launched this segment, I was chatting with Oleg in the break there, and he pointed out something really, really compelling that I think is something that all the data modelers out there should uh, take note of, which is that uh, the standard data models that we've gotten packaged with many of these technologies over the past 20 or 30 years probably aren't optimal for the new world that we're looking at. And so, Oleg, I'll bring you back in to comment on that. Explain what you mean and why it's important to really take a hard look at your data models in a new cloud-native world. Yeah, so like many companies, right, um, we've entered into long-term agreements, uh, you know, with the Oracles, IBMs, and others for the world, right, that, that provided us some baseline financial services models that we use in a variety of our diversified businesses. Um, and while those models were great, um, you know, for how the business operated a number of years ago, they haven't evolved at the same rate um, as the rest of the industry has, right, from the offering product perspective. So um, the question has always been, when do you spend the money to really modernize uh, the data warehouses supporting all of the analytical activities that are driving your operational execution? Um, if you're stuck in this model, you might have already over-customized it to a degree, right, beyond what the vendor originally provides you, since companies like Siebel Systems and others, from which a lot of the models are on CRM and others, um, you know, originated, right? Um, so, you know, uh, as people consider moving more and more assets to Redshift, Snowflake, and other cloud-based solutions, this also gives them an opportunity to do the reset, because we know taking a current model, just shoving it into the cloud, it does not provide the efficiency for majority of the companies out there. There could be some exceptions, I just haven't seen them. Um, so it does give an extra factor to be able to really modernize and optimize your data model for the future. The other portion of the equation is the pipelines, right? A lot of the data warehouses, like I mentioned earlier, uh, and a majority of the companies are run through what? ETL processes, right? Um, but if you want to increase the velocity, right, um, of the data coming in in order for your analytical activities to use as, as most recent data sets possible, um, there's been a lot of pivot as well. If you use a lot of reference data, right, do more of a table replication type of concept versus having to reload the data. Um, if you have a pipeline with, you know, social networks or certain application or product level providers, you know, using streaming technologies like Kafka, JMS, and others definitely increases the velocity in terms of how quickly and how fresh the data that's coming in is able to be available to your analytical processes. So there's a variety of interesting um, items as far as refactoring that, um the latest cloud solutions really provide to you, but definitely taking the approach of, I've always done it this way in internal data centers of my data warehouses, and I'm gonna do this, this way in the cloud, probably is not gonna yield the results that you and your financial uh, scenario, specifically at your employer or others is gonna yield for you. Yeah, that's a really good point. And just to explain to our audience, Kafka, Oleg just referred to Kafka, Apache Kafka, is this tremendous engine for data streaming that was spun out of LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is one of many companies that has contributed to the Apache open source community and open source in general. And I thought to myself, back when this was happening, Oleg, I'm glad you just mentioned that, because back in 05, I think, or 06, when we were first talking about all this, it really dawned on me that smart organizations are going to take a hard look at where and how they can leverage streaming data First, in new use cases, for example, but then over time, you'll realize that there are processes in place for ETLing data from here to there that you just don't need anymore. And you can turn those off or at least 
pare them down, right? Because I think one of the hindrances to leveraging data as an asset is just whether or not you can get the right data to the right place at the right time. Those batch windows that we've been fighting about for the last 20, 25 years or so, a lot of that stuff goes out the window. You have to be careful, obviously, what you're doing. You can't turn off something mission critical. And that kind of gets back to architecture and understanding your your big picture, really. But uh, I'm encouraged by what you mentioned there, because I think that is one way that companies can not only leverage the freshest data, but also take some take some load off of your IT folks, take some load off of the engineers and allow them to, to focus on some bigger picture items. What do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and th- there's a, an extra item that really, really helps companies that are mature. And that's really the transparency. Um, because, like I said, moving all your assets as is, um, sometimes not a cost-effective model, but if you really know who's actually using it, if you start, in the majority of the companies, as I talk to other CDOs, as you start looking at all of the, your ETL jobs, and you look at your dataware, and you look at the views of a lot of your data warehouses, and you start auditing that, and really looking at a transparency level, who's actually using it and consuming it? You'll notice that some of these views have not been touched in years. Right. Some of these ETL jobs, That's even right. though the file might be getting to an FTP zone and, and being shipped somewhere, nobody's actually p- picking it up from a destination point, right? Um, so it gives you opportunity if you have the right transparency stack, right? And the right way to really know what's going on and who's consuming and who's not consuming any of these assets. It gives you a much simpler view in terms of what do I need to carry forward? Right. As well as what abstraction do I need to create? Because one of the biggest challenges with the shift to the cloud or any other data warehouse shift, as you guys are aware, is all of the applications that are consuming any of your interfaces that are using it in somewhat of a real time call form versus a batch. Right. And and not that it doesn't impact batch. um, You might have to change. Right. So let's say you have 50 folks that are using a particular view. Right. With 50 different applications. And you go and you modify that view and change it as part of your cloud strategy. If you don't provide backwards compatibility, now you have to coordinate with all those 15 teams to modify their code, right? To now use the data set that it's getting. Now, if you added additional elements, that's one thing. But if you modified any of the schema underneath, right, our apps are going to break. So having abstraction and having a real strategy, architectural strategy as part of your implementation, how you're actually going to roll over and how you're going to move your consumers. And if you have pretty massive data warehouse, how do you do it as a stepping stone strategy in terms of you move certain domains of data um, or certain table structures, right, over a certain period of time versus the big bang approach um, are all key to success in this field because majority of us are dealing with petabytes and petabytes of information in a lot of these data warehouse where, you know, between historical data as well as, you know, 20, 30,000 tables, um, you really need to take into account different levers that you're going to pull to be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a big fan of cliches, and one of my favorites isn't used very often, but it just says, well begun is half done. And it kind of speaks to the value of thinking through what you're trying to accomplish. And as you suggest, trying to leverage cloud for, for its various benefits is obviously what we need to be doing. But I think you, you do need to have programs where you're running concurrently for a period of time with the new solution and the old solution, right? And be darn sure that when you turn that off, the old solution that you're not going to have some unforeseen uh, developments. How are you able to to scan your information systems and see where those dependencies are? Is there, is there a capability that you have to be able to kind of map out those dependencies and know when if I trigger this, that's going to be disrupted, that kind of thing? How do you manage that? 
Yeah, so so great question. Um, so traditionally, it's it, it's been hard, despite the fact that you know a lot of companies uh, like Calibra, IGC, and others provide you you know a variety of tool sets. And some of those are newer companies. Some like IBM have been around obviously for many many years. There's also been a ton of open source tool sets, uh, like you know extensions on AWS and the ELK stack, and others that enable you to do that. But essentially, if you're able to utilize, like I said, the open source or vended stack to create your lineage transparency and real business logic view into all of your processes, it, it gives you a much better baseline for what you need to shift over. And then what you mentioned earlier, the parallelism has been critical. Anytime we do a big shift like this, right, for minimally one to two releases, we run dual load. Mm-hmm. Right. Not a dual load necessarily purely from because we're concerned that the cloud is not going to be able to scale and we're going to overload our, our, our VPCs. But dual load from a redundancy perspective, also, that gives confidence to your business users and partners because they're able to see the same result from your new data model and new infrastructure, as well as your legacy one. It, it brings them along a lot quicker because, as you may, as you're aware, a lot of companies, folks, you know, change is hard. Right. You have to get there, and, and when you're concerned that you're running a critical finance process and you might not get the data set that you need for something that you have to send to a regulator or, you know, your finance team or something else, right, um, you know, the more strategy you have around that and, and the more defensive mechanism that you put forward to ensure continuity through comparison and validation scripts, the more confidence your business partners have with you and they let you do these massive migrations. Hmm. Yeah, and get some quick wins, right? Because the uh, the users always want faster. They want better. They want greater accuracy. All that. All those are all the benefits. And if you can demonstrate that, and obviously be very careful about it, that's when you earn the trust, and then you can make even more changes and get even faster, right? Yep. Yeah, this is good stuff. Well, folks, we have a podcast bonus segment coming up in just a minute. Um, but before then, I guess very quickly, um, Oleg, what's your advice to an aspiring chief data officer? What, what, if someone wants to be a CDO, what's your 60 seconds of advice on how to get there? Um, outside of business acumen in terms of what business problems you're trying to address, you got to get your hand around the ecosystem. So getting transparency and understanding what the data issues that the enterprise faces, what are the goals of the enterprise and how they're translated or will translate into implementation what's analytical or operational needs, right? Um, understanding your intellectual capital in terms of the people, because a lot of CDOs come in not to build a brand new organization. They come in and they inherit a variety of the data management teams that traditionally have been in silo form spread across the enterprise. Um, so in my view, success comes around not only understanding the business, which is critical, but also be able to get your hands around full, you know, history and issues and be able to come up with a plan and strategy, um, on how to execute. And like I said, the, the one key is in a strategic sense, not a strategy. And I mentioned this earlier with some fancy executive deck, but strategy that any development resource um, across your organization or any consultant that you bring in within 30 days is able to understand, embrace and execute on yeah, right? something great. with patterns and consistency in order to be able to govern officially. All right, we'll, pick uh, that officially up, we'll pick that up after the break, folks. We'll be right back. If your business depends on web and mobile applications to connect with customers and drive transactions, then your success or failure as a company hinges on your ability to continuously deliver a flawless digital experience. It's no surprise then that testing is fast becoming the foundation of the agile development process, and nobody does testing better than Sauce Labs. 
Sauce Labs ensures the world's leading apps and websites work flawlessly on every browser, OS, and device. Its award-winning continuous testing cloud provides development and quality teams with instant access to the test coverage, scalability, and analytics they need to rapidly deliver a flawless digital experience. To learn more about Sauce Labs and the power of continuous testing, visit www.saucelabs.com. Want to be a guest on Inside Analysis? Send us an email to info at insightanalysis.com. Inside Analysis is the only radio show focused on the information economy. This is GAB1, gabradionetwork.com. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. Podcast bonus segment here on DM Radio, the strategic CDO. We've been talking to Oleg Aspis of TIAA. Lots of amazing things you have going on over there, Oleg. I really have to say hats off to what you folks have done. And one of the topics that we kind of brushed on and talked a bit about, which is very deep, is this whole concept of a data fabric. So just to explain to our audience out there, the database has traditionally been the foundation of information systems, whether it's IBM or Oracle, DB2, or a lot of the new ones, MongoDB, MySQL, Couchbase, there are tons of them out there. But increasingly, those systems in and of themselves are just not fast enough or diverse enough or robust enough to be able to handle the information needs that we have. So this concept of data fabric is coming up. And I guess, Oleg, I'll throw it over to you to kind of explain it as best you can in layman terms, especially vis-a-vis this concept of cloud native. So when you start dealing with cloud native environments, hybrid cloud environments, when you use the term data fabric from a TIA perspective, what does that really mean? Yeah, so, so data fabric is our middle integration layer, and I don't want to call it middleware because there's a lot more than that, but essentially is something that we're investing heavily in and we're trying to expand in order to accommodate really that flexibility as we go forward to be able to expose data to all of our channels, whether it's web, mobile, or any other business processes. The way we categorize all of our platforms internally is channel systems, process systems, right? Um, and then the, the third guy is all of our product systems, right? All of the vendor systems that support particular product line. But they have to interact with a lot of different processes across finance, HR, and many different systems. So we use the Fabric A as an abstraction layer to be able to isolate a particular set of data technologies behind the scenes because as Hadoop starts to die out on the line, right? I don't want to be able to, I don't want to have to change all of my applications that consume data from Hadoop every single time I want to swap out technology, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, the fabric needs to provide you capabilities in order to orchestrate business rules. Because what happens today? You might have multiple channels. You might have your clients looking at a certain data on the web. You might have a CRM system where your internal salespeople are utilizing to talk to your clients. And you might have a certain publishing mechanism which sends PDFs with statements, right? Um, you know, once a month, once a quarter, depending on the scenario. But different teams are orchestrating that. And what happens very often, different teams use different business rules and logic. So some of the basics, right, around your customer data consumption, regardless of the channel, at times is not consistent. Well, the fabric enables you to create a consistent set of business rules, consistent set of technology rules, and enable governance and implement it as a consistent layer. The other portion of the fabric is really more on the consumption of the channel side is 
you are a company that has, let's say, a lot of SOAP services that you've wrote over the last 10 years. And now you move into modern API and REST services. But once again, in order for you to shift everybody to your latest set of service interfaces, what do you need to do? You need to go and modify all of those web services, right, that you wrote, you know, 10, 15 years ago to work against the latest API. Well, what the fabric enables us to do in a lot of cases is create that backwards compatibility where it constructs your payload depending on a consumer that's coming still off your same backend systems and through your middleware and send the response in an object that that SOAP service can still consume and use on a channel until you're fully ready to modernize or rewrite it, right, as your business processes evolve. So the fabric has a variety of different roles from data management to data governance to business rule orchestration, as well as a variety of other little tool sets for consumption. And this is a heavy space where a lot of companies are trying to build a fabric-based solution, especially the traditional ETL players like Talent and others. There's few companies that have built a pretty sophisticated solution, specifically, you know, new, you know, dot-com companies out there uh, in terms of the ones that are coming out of Silicon Valley. There's a few out of Israel that are really doing some sophisticated things that are going to simplify uh, the whole world. But the fabric is not usable in a piecemeal form. You have to kind of embrace the fabric and use it for all of these middle uh, orchestration processes in order to be successful, at least you know, from, from my perspective. But backwards compatibility is, is, is critical um, to uh, let the fabric come in and be able to be integrated. But it's also one of the best ways to bring a lot of the isolated uh, siloed application teams that tend to, you know, flourish in a lot of big corporations, right, and small and medium ones as well, into one common framework because the fabric enables you to actually control the patterns of movement, right, rules as well as the history, latency, uh, caching, and any other aspects that you might need in order to expose the data to the channel. That, that's fascinating. You answered a couple of questions that came in here just a moment ago. One of the attendees was asking, is your data fabric limited to on-premise or hybrid? How easy is it to change or manage the underlying technology of the data fabric? And that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Is having that layer of abstraction, which is the data fabric. And underneath that, you have Hadoop or you have even a cloud data warehouse like Snowflake. You have whatever you're dealing with, all your sources basically are channeled through that fabric. And by, by really focusing on rolling that out as a durable enterprise resource, you've enabled yourself to take advantage of whatever comes along. And at the appointed time, maybe even sunset something, which happens once in a while, right? Yeah. <laughs> once in a blue moon. <laughs> once, once in a blue moon. But, but, but like I said, one of the biggest benefits is the ability to be able to create because of control. But um, because you don't want to put applications into the cloud that don't necessarily going to provide a lot of value or mm -hmm. potentially increase your egress charges, right, and, and make your cloud costs go, ability to control that through the fabric in terms of where stuff gets deployed, you essentially abstract your development team so we don't have to worry about where my data is going to go. Right. By using it, looking through the fabric and the consumption patterns, where are the actual resources and systems that are going to consume data from the fabric? What do I need to put into the cache mechanism of the fabric? Because right. I need high availability and I need to go maintenance somewhere else and I need the channel still to be up. Um, so having that flexibility in one central framework is really essential. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. I think you hit the nail on the head there and, and you're really 
enabling your teams to, to do their best work as well, right? And, and I guess very, very quickly here, in that fabric is where you can have some kind of policy because what's going to happen is costs are going to come down from this vendor or that vendor. They're going to go up. Functionality is going to change. And if you monitor all that, if you can dynamically monitor that and the impact it has in your bottom line, that's when you can start saving, like some guy mentioned from Facebook this morning, CapEx style money, right? Yeah. Wow. Well, folks, we've been talking to Oleg Aspis. Look him up on LinkedIn. TIAA is doing some absolutely fantastic work here today. We talked about alternative data using alternative data, life event models, but also this whole point around data fabric and really embracing the data fabric going forward, folks, because it's going to save us from so many problems. You're going to make so many people so much happier. And uh, just morale is, is such a critical component of success these days. Big thanks to Oleg and his time. Big thanks to our sponsor, Okira, for allowing us to bring this content free of charge. We'll talk to you next week, folks. You've been listening to DM Radio.